It is, as of today, 19 days until Christmas. If the countdown, that's what we have going on. Christmas, the day that we celebrate the, the God-man, the Son of God coming into this world. And we think of how that happened. Does it ever strike you as surreal and strange how the one that Scripture says is involved in creating this world came into this world? That the Son of God uh, became alive as uh, cells inside of Mary's uh, belly and for nine months grew in uh, the, the squishy places inside her, inside her abdomen uh, for nine months and then later on was, was born into this world in the way that all babies are born and come into this world. And then he, the one that upholds this world, was a, was a helpless, crying uh, little baby that needed to be cared for by his family, by his mother and his, and his father. And we think about this sometimes as Christmas, so maybe we think, okay, yeah, we're supposed to think about that as Christmas. But let me ask you this. Does it also seem strange and surreal to you that this is how you came into this world? I mean, we take it for granted that, well, this is the only way to come into the world, but God designed it like this. And he had his purposes for bringing us into the world in this context of family with a mother and a father, and coming into the world this way. We are in the series on your work and callings. And notice the word callings here is, is plural. And this is because we have been saying that each of us, we have multiple callings in our lives. And there is our major ultimate calling that you have and you recognize if you're a Christian if you think of this, this is a big circle over your head that uh, Jesus Christ is Lord of your life in every single area. Every square inch of your life and everything that you do is to follow him as Lord, to, to love him, to recognize uh, him as, as your Lord, and to, to glorify him with your life. But then underneath that, there are these other callings that God is calling us to do. These callings don't come from our heart. They come from God we know about him through, through scripture, and he is calling us to obey and to uh, live out our lives for him in certain ways. And we've been talking about four main areas of calling. There's calling in the, in the workplace, and throughout history, people have either worked in the home or sometimes they've, they've gone different places, but they had to provide for their family. Uh, and also, in the, the workplace, oftentimes we are doing things that contribute to the good of other people through the things we make, through the work that we do. And this is God working through you to benefit and for the good of other people. We've talked about your calling in the local church, that if you are a Christian, if you're a believer, God has a calling upon you uh, to be used um, in the life of the local church to fulfill the mission, to, to make disciples, to help evangelize and, and disciple and build up the body of Christ. We'll be talking about next week your calling as a citizen in your country, your community. It's under God, but it is a calling that he has for us. But today we're going to be talking about your calling in the family and in the, the family that you have and how you are supposed to be, uh, that you are called to do work there. Sometimes when we talk about a vocation, we're used to, outside of church, thinking vocation means your job or just where you go to work in the workplace. But as we've said, the word vocation literally means calling. 
So yep, you're, the job that you're uh, hopefully called to is one of your vocations, but these other things are also vocations that God has for you. They're vocations, they're not vacations. And this week we're talking about your calling in the home. This is your home work that God has called you to do. And this is a calling that's from God. And we're going to see this is absolutely vital, not just to you and your family, but this also has a spillover effect that affects your community and everyone that is, that is around you. Gene uh, Veith wrote a really excellent book on this uh, called Family Vocation. And I want to just read you one quote that he said. He said, The institution of the family is necessary for our very existence, basic to our culture, and critical to our happiness and well-being. And there's a lot of truth in that statement. And we're going to do some work to, to unpack some of this and, and what that means. That this calling of family, this is how God brought us into the world. It's designed for, uh, your, we owe our existence to this. And how this is important, not just for uh, ourselves, it is, um, but this also is, is basic. It's a building block for, for culture and for the world and for our happiness, not the light type of happiness, but our, our ultimate well-being and for things to go the way that God has planned. So in this message, the first part of this, uh, we're not going to right away talk about, okay, here's different roles within the family. We'll get to that in the book of Ephesians. Uh, but I think especially in today's world, we need to back up a little bit and we need to talk about what is God's design for family and all the related parts that are connected to that, uh, gender and gender differences, uh, man and a woman coming together in marriage. What does marriage mean? What is it all about? What is it supposed to be? Uh, our culture and society doesn't get it anymore. What is the place and how does that connect with uh, sexual relations within marriage? And where is that supposed to be? And how does that connect to the producing of children and raising them in a family? All of these things are meant to be connected. And so we need to look at what the Bible says about these things. And then we will talk about uh, God's, some of God's callings that he has for each person within the family. But it's going to mean a lot more when we look at God's design for this. Uh, there's a lot to say, and in some ways we're going to be just scratching the surface. But the first point that I want to make as we think about this then is this, that God designed family as the most foundational institution for human flourishing. Think of different institutions that God made. Uh, we're going to talk about next week uh, government. There's different levels of that. But that is not the most basic institution that God has given us. The most basic institution, the most basic building block for society is the family. We're going to see that God creates this right in the beginning in the book of Genesis. And it's this building block that uh, God uses to, to, to construct, to make the, the world, to make society. Think of all the things that God could have, uh, the ways that God could have brought us into existence. Okay, God, we know he wanted to create uh, people. Uh, he brought us into this world so that we could know him, we could love him, we could find our joy and happiness in him. God has always existed, and he's existed as Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they have, 
uh, for timeless eternity, shared uh, the, the love that each person in the Trinity has for each other and the joy that they have. Uh, but God didn't want that to just stay with him. He wanted that to spill over and to be spread to others. So God created you and I and everyone else with the, the purpose and the goal that we would come to know him as our Savior and Lord and our joy and our treasure. And that's what we're made for, and that's the best thing for us. That's the greatest joy that we would have. So God wanted to create people. So think about it. If God wanted to do that, and he wanted to have lots of people, why didn't he just create the world pre-populated? I mean, he could have done that. He could have, you know, on the uh, sixth day of creation, God created all the cities with, uh, you know, millions of people in each city and billions of people throughout the world and just started it off that way with all kinds of uh, billions of people. God could have created us differently as well. He could have created each of us directly and individually. I mean, God created, in the beginning, Adam individually, okay, and then created Eve from him. But ever since then, we've come from other people. But God could have made us all directly, it seems like God did that probably with the, with the angels as far as we can tell what's revealed. Remember, the angels are not dead people. You do not become an angel when you die. Your, your soul or spirit, the immaterial part of you, goes to be the Lord. But that's not an angel. Angels are a, a different uh, classification of being that were created by God. And they don't marry. They don't reproduce. God just made them all. God could have made us all at the same time. He could have, you know, had an assembly line. He makes, you know, one person every hour and brings us into existence. God could have done it that way. God could have created you and I that we reproduce like amoebas. You know, you have a big Thanksgiving dinner and uh, you swap and then boop, you pop in half and then there's, there's another one. And that's how God, you know, populates this world. That'd be different. I guess if it, you know, uh, that's what we're used to, you'd think that's normal. And then uh, to think the way that God actually does it now with a, a man and a woman coming together and uh, what happens there and then a baby being produced, uh, that's instead how God did it. God didn't create us in any of the other ways. He, instead, he brought us into existence, every single one of us, every single one of you, every single person in this world, by one man and one woman coming together producing a baby, and then having them meant to be raised by the mom and dad in the family. This is God's usual way to work. And of course, God can do anything he wants. He could do things differently if he wants. But when we think of callings, we think of vocation like this. Notice that in all of these, God is, is working through people to do his work. And to working through you, and I, to help other people, to do good for other people. And so we think of uh, God working through us as his normal way of doing things. Um, you know, sometimes I think of, you see these, you know, scientists, and they have to, I don't know, work with the radioactive elements or something, you know, biohazard, and there's this big glass box, you know, and I, I guess I've just seen this in movies or whatever. You know, and so he can't be in there. So they got like the gloves built into the, the glass thing and he reaches in so he can put the plutonium on the whatever. You know, I think that's kind of how I picture God working through us in the different vocations, these different callings that he has for us. It's God doing it, 
but he's doing it through people usually. So God is the one that gives you your daily bread, but he did it through uh, farmers and then truck drivers and uh, somebody at the, the grocery store, the checkout person at Aldi's, and we get our, you get your stuff that way, God working through them. God is the one that brought the gospel to you, and he probably did it through somebody telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you could be saved. And God is also the one that made you. It's right to confess that God made you, but he also made you through uh, your mom and your dad. And yep, they had to work together for this to happen. And for the first nine months, it was especially mom. And with the, just the amazing thing that God designed a, a, a woman to be able to uh, have this new life grow inside of her. And this life that is a, a immortal human being uh, that's going to live forever um, one, one day uh, in, in heaven or hell, but this, this immortal, uh, glorious thing that God makes, but it's God working in and through us. It's an amazing thing. So God designed, he could have done it different ways, but God designed family as the way we come into this world, that family is foundational for our very existence. God made you, he made everyone through family, through a mother and a father, and for the, it, with the intention of them being raised by this family. And some people would say, well, you can't say this, that's a heteronormative or something like that. Well, you know what, this is biology. This is how God made things to work. And this is how every one of us came into being. So scripture talks about this right away in the beginning. Uh, we keep going back to the beginning of Genesis because it just sets the stage for everything else in our Christian worldview. And in Genesis 1, verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. When we look at this, and we're going to see some of these elements of God's plan for, for marriage and sexual relations and family and parenting, one of the things that we need to notice is that all of these things are like parts that are designed and meant to work together. And part of the big problem that our world and society has is we're trying to take these parts that are meant to be linked and work together in specific ways and in the right order and to just throw out some, uh, to rearrange them any way we want, and to think, well, it, things are going to be fine and it'll work out just as well for us. You know, if you had the nicest car there is, okay, and you decide, well, I'm just going to take out some of these parts and I'm going to rearrange them and, and toss them and put some things in in a different order, then don't get mad when it doesn't work the way it's supposed to work. It's designed in a certain way. So we need to look at the design that God has for us we need to take this to heart. And also, we need to be the ones passing this on to the next generations because the world around us isn't going to be. They're going to be telling people, hey, you know, you design it the way you want. You, you rearrange and it should work out just as well, but that's a lie. It's not going to. So here, first of all, we see God created humans and he made us male and female. 
that we're not just a generic one type of human being. There's, there's two basic types of, of humans. He made males, he made men, he made women. They're not interchangeable. Uh, they're not um, where one is uh, great, super great, and the other's uh, second class. They're, they're complementary to each other, both created in the image of God, but they're different, and they're meant to work together and to fulfill the roles and the callings that they have, but in different ways. Just like two parts of a car are meant to work together. So God created male and female, complementary, and here at the beginning, it's Adam and Eve. If you think about, you know, who are you called to marry? If you're single, that is a question you might have. I think Adam and Eve, well, they knew who they were called by God to marry. Uh, There's no real mystery in it. Um, God made them for each other, and they were the only ones around. They had this arranged marriage by God. So God brought them together, and then God told them what they were supposed to do. And we see here the first words, at least that we have recorded in Scripture, of God to humanity. He told them, he, he, he blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He said, I made you, now it's up to you. I want you to make more of you, to make more human beings. Let's, let's, let's fill this world with human beings, with, with people. I created you in my image. Now you create other people that are in your image that are also then created in my image, that there would be more worshipers, more people to, to know and love the Lord. So he gave them this as their mission. This means that this shows God's design for sexual relations. God designed sexual relations, we see here first and foremost, with the uh, goal of producing children, that they would come together in this way, it would produce children. We see also in Scripture that God also designed sexual relations to bind a husband and a wife together. And I point these things out because our society is going to take these in all different ways, that it's just about recreation or, or having fun, but people knew from the beginning that this is designed with the purpose of, of children. It's also had the purpose of binding together a husband and a wife. In Genesis 2, it starts talking about this, 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So eventually they break away from their other household, they start a new household, and they're joined together, and says, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. When it says they became one flesh, they're, they're joined together, not just uh, physically, and there's a design element in the human body where men and women fit together in a certain way, not to be too graphic, but it's a biological reality that is important for us to remember. But this is also about a, an emotional and spiritual coming together. Um, it's, it's legal in the minds of God. It's all these different things, but there is a, uh, a reality where the two become one. And the sexual union is, is designed uh, for, for that to happen. In a way, you could think of um, the sexual relation as kind of the, the superglue to, to permanently bond two people together. And superglue, hey, it's great when you're gluing two things together that you want to be together. 
It's not that great when you're getting it on stuff that you didn't really want it together and now you've got to pry it loose or you've got it on your hands and now you've got to rip your hands apart and you, you're hurting and you've got chunks of skin ripping off and all of this. In the same way, God created sexual relations. It is a good thing when it's used the way it's supposed to, to bind together a husband and a wife. It's meant to be a lifelong union. But it is, causes a lot of hurt and a lot, of, a lot of pain and a lot of, a lot of uh, heartache and scarring and, and damage when people misuse it in a way that a lot of people have been lied to and said that this is just like any other thing that you can do. It, it's a recreational thing, and it's okay to uh, you know, just have these relationships with, with all kinds of people, one after another. And there doesn't have to be commitment. It doesn't have to last. And it's like you're, they're gluing themselves and, and ripping apart and gluing themselves and ripping apart even if they don't realize that's what's happening. We know that's what happens because Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians six sixteen. he wrote to the Corinthians and said, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So even if you don't intend it to, to bond you together, there's a sense which it, which it does. Not in the way that you're supposed to, but... There's, there's a mess that happens there. as part of the reason why there's something that's especially uh, painful and devastating about, about sexual sin and why it's so important to, to not misuse that good gift that God gave us and designed for us. So God designed these relations to produce children, to bind together a husband and a wife. And God also designed marriage as the place for the pleasure of sexual intimacy to take place without sin. So there'd be a place where this can happen and where God views it as good and not sinful. In well, we see this a little bit, at least hinted at with it saying they were naked and not ashamed. In 1 Corinthians 7, this chapter, we've looked at parts of this already in this series, uh, but in the beginning verses of this, Paul is talking to the Corinthians and answering some questions that they had about marriage and about these matters. And some people, it seems, were writing to him and saying, hey, we heard that some people are saying it's good not to have sexual relations. What do you think about that, Paul? Tell us what you think. And Paul writes this. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. This is 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to take a look at this. And Paul writes and says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, unquote. Then Paul gives his view on it. He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, realize what this is saying here. Then it says here in uh, verse 4, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, this next part here, this would really be countercultural back in, in that day. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So if you're offended about the, part, the first part, realize the second part here is too. There, you both belong to each other, in a sense, within, within the marriage. 
Verse 5, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he's saying this is good, you, this is good to have this fulfillment for this uh, desire that God gave. Then, but Paul says, hey, this isn't for everyone necessarily, because God has not called everyone uh, into the vocation of marriage. Paul says, now as, a concession, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul's saying this because he was a single guy, at least at this point in his life. And he's saying, this is a calling for some people that they're going to be single. This is also a vocation from God. And whether it's the the whole life or part of our life, that is a vocation that uh, we came into this world single. And even if you're married now, well, statistically, 50% of us are going to find ourselves single again. Not to be, you know, gloomy about that, but that's just how it is. And even at that time when God has us in that situation, that's our calling that we have at that point. And Paul is saying, hey, realize that there's also ways that God is going to use you and work through you in your singleness. There's certain advantages, Paul was saying, that he realized he had that married people didn't. So that's a calling from God, but also being married, if that's what God has for you, is a calling from God as well. So he goes on, And then he says, To the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, then they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So obviously the logic of this is that sexual relations are meant within the marriage relationship. That God designed these relationships to be within the union, the marriage of a husband and a wife that are married to each other. And when it's there, it's good. When it's out of that, it's, it's not good. Uh, it described it like fire. That fire is something that is good when it's where it's supposed to be. If you have fire in the fireplace, uh, it is a good thing. It heats your home. If you have fire that's on the curtains and all over your house, it can be a very damaging uh, thing that can cause a lot of destruction. And the same way with God's gift of these type of relations, it's good when it's supposed to be, and it's not good when it's in other places. And for our society, it is all over the place. But, you know, sometimes Christianity, people give it the rap of being, like, against sexual relations. Realize we're saying here, no, God is the one that designed these. And do you realize the commands that I've been reading to you, if you're married here, part of your calling that God is telling you to do is, well, basically he's telling you, you need fire in your fireplace. And maybe you need more fire than is in your fireplace. And many of you might be thinking, Pastor, this is the best message you've ever preached. <laughs> so, now I know there's a time and a place, and uh, there's some reasons why it might not be able, but this is something that God, it, he does um, have for us, and it's part of that calling. In marriage, you're called, in this way and many others, to protect and nurture the healthier marriage. And we see that Jesus also affirmed this design for marriage and family. In Matthew 19, 
Jesus is asked about divorce. And in this passage, the Pharisees come up to him and it says, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? (laughs) Which, by the way, here Jesus is defining marriage as one man and one woman. Just pointing that out to you. And then he brings them back to Genesis, to the original creation. Verse 5, And he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now when Jesus said that, what God joined together, this lets us know that marriage is not a human creation. Okay, this is not just like a contract that you might sign with a business partner and you, and you can make it up any way you want. That when there is a real marriage, okay, and that's a, a man and a woman, uh, this is God joining them together. And it's true even if they weren't Christians at the time. Because this is, the gift of marriage is a good thing that God has given to all humans. Because it's a building block for society, for, for children and for the health. This is part of God's common grace to everyone. But we as Christians, we have even more insight because we know God's design for this. And we know that we're going to see in a little bit that God also uses this to help us realize the relationship between Jesus Christ and believers, between Christ and, and the church. But here, this is what, what God does. He is the one joining together a husband and a wife. It's not just a contract. This is, this is a covenant union that God brings these two together. And he says, let not man separate. He wants you to stay together. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we see this teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. It also talked about uh, if an unbelieving spouse deserts a uh, believing spouse uh, that she is considered um, not bound. But those are the exceptions to the rule. The, the, the goal is that marriage is meant to be a lifelong union. And our society views marriage as it, it's just a contract like anything else. In fact, there are some that have uh, even changed the marriage vows from as long as we both shall live to as long as we both shall love. Because, you know, what if we fall out of love? You know, but that's not how it is. A part of it is that our society, and we've seen this with, you know, the Supreme Court changing the definition of marriage and all the battles about this, is because our society has been viewing marriage something that is primarily about the happiness of adults disconnected from children, disconnected from family, disconnected from the purposes that God has for it. And that basically a marriage ceremony to many people is just a public celebration of romantic love. And that two people are in love and kind of committed, at least for now. And that's kind of all it is. Where instead, God designed marriage and gave it to humanity as, as the engine for, for building families. 
that marriage, it's meant to be a lifelong commitment that unites a man and a woman together along with any children that may result from their union. This is part of God's plan, so that before you start engaging in sexual relations that only should be in marriage, I mean, that's the logic of 1 Corinthians 7, it's better to marry than to burn with passion, because then it's okay, you can do this, you're supposed to do it, that's how you consummate the marriage. But it also means that children may very well come along, not always, but very often, that's kind of the, the what's eventually one day that happens and so this marriage is what keeps you know the father of the child and the mother of the child together they're committed to each other and it's also a commitment that they're making to any future children if God should bless them with those children and he may or may not but if he does they're committed that they're going to be there so that they can raise this these the children together because usually mom is going to be around, but otherwise, dad, maybe not. And that's why having a culture that has a stronger view of marriage and expectations for this to happen in the right order and before there's these relationships and this be together for children, this is better for kids, it's better for society. This is God's plan. And, the re- and our going against this and breaking things, these things up has just been terrible it caused so many problems uh, for people and for society and for, for our world. So much heartache, so much, so much pain. God designed family as foundational <clears throat> for the good of society. Human beings and society were based on family. As we said, it's the basic social unit uh, the building block, it's not government, it's not anything else but, but families. And therefore, for society to be healthy and intact, families ought to be healthy and intact. And to the extent that families are healthy, society will be healthy. To the extent that families are unhealthy, it's going to have this effect on society as well if we're built on this foundation. Therefore, God's design for family is is critical for human flourishing. Families, as we said, are the building blocks for communities. And this is true even if and when you are called to be single. Remember, you are from a family, and you're healthier if your family was healthy, and you're probably still part of an extended family that you have and and that you have callings, and you're, you're part of that as well. So marriage, sexual relations, raising kids, these were all designed to go together and in the right order. And what God has ta- designed to be a package deal, instead we have taken that and fragmented it. And this has caused fragmented lives, and this is, has caused fragmented lives in a fragmented society. Think of all the problems that we have in the world that would be solved if more of society had a high view of marriage and the right view of uh, sexuality is to be only between a husband and a wife that are married to each other, and a right view of family and, and parenting. And if we live these things out, problems that we would have less of would include the emotional and spiritual trauma that comes from sexual relations without commitment and breakups and all of the problems that were emphasized in the Me Too movement 
people being, women being taken advantage of and, and rape and rape culture and all these things, that this wouldn't be the case of society that values marriage and uh, values this type of respect and commitment is the exact opposite of that type of uh, abusive rape culture. We wouldn't have the pain and trauma that comes from, from divorce for adults and, and from kids, children growing up without a mom or a dad to be around to raise them together, boys growing up without the role models that they need, especially boys with their dads, girls growing up without the role models that they need, including a, for them also a dad that they can look to and see as a model for how a man should treat a woman and the type of person that they should be looking for to marry. Sexually transmitted diseases, abortion, poverty, and abuse. You know, abuse statistically is far less for children growing up with married biological parents. And you know what? It would be completely absent if parents are living according to their calling as described in the Bible. I mentioned poverty. Here's just some statistics, okay? Um, one, marriage decreases the chance that a child will live in poverty by 82%. In fatherless homes, children are two times more likely to be arrested for juvenile crime, two times more likely to be treated for emotional and behavioral problems, two times more likely to be suspended or expelled from school, they're more likely to drop out of school, three times more likely to end up in jail by age 30, and the effects go into adulthood. Compared to intact families, children raised by single parents are 50% more likely to suffer poverty as adults. I know there are many single parents, and I'm definitely not trying to um, make anyone feel bad. Uh, and may God give you the help that you need. But what we want to aim for, what, what is the ideal situation, would be the mom and the dad together in marriage raising the children. And this isn't, if, we, if these statistics, and there are lots of these statistics that say the same things, same type of things. And if, if we really cared about helping uh, the poor, reducing poverty, helping people to avoid abuse, all these different uh, justice issues, we would care about having a better view of, of marriage and sexuality in our culture. It's not just the fact that God tells us to do this. It's not just a religious thing. This is also what actually is best for society and for people in the world. The breakdown of families and especially the issue of fatherlessness, this is the, actually the real systematic problem in society that no one really seems to want to talk about. Uh, Mary Eberstadt has written several books kind of on this issue, and she recently published a, a very powerful article in First Things uh, titled The Fury of the Fatherless. And she talks about many of the things that happened in 2020 with riots and all the unrest, and she points out the connection that this has to our culture of, of fatherlessness and the breakdown of families. Let me read you just a section of this. She says, The explosive events of 2020 are but the latest eruption along a fault line running through our already unstable lives. That eruption exposes the threefold crisis of filial attachment 
She uses the word filial. It means father-son relationships. The crisis of these father-son relationships that has beset the Western world for more than half a century. Deprived of father, she says, a critical mass of humanity has become socially dysfunctional on a scale not seen before. She goes on to say, the riots amount to social dysfunction on parade. Six decades of social science have established that the most efficient way to increase dysfunction is to increase fatherlessness. And this the United States has done for two generations now. Almost one in four children today grow up without a father in the home. For African Americans, it is some 65% of children. Some people, mainly on the left, think there's nothing to see here. They're wrong. The vast majority of incarcerated juveniles have grown up in fatherless homes. Teen and other mass murderers almost invariably have uh, father-son ruptures in their biographies. Absent fathers predict higher rates of truancy, psychiatric problems, criminality, promiscuity, drug use, rape, domestic violence, and other less-than-optimal outcomes. Here's another pertinent, albeit socially radioactive, fact. Fatherlessness leads to a search for father substitutes, and some of these daddy placeholders turn out to be toxic, unquote. And after this, she goes on and she talks about gang problems. And you know, so much of this is, is people looking, w- without fathers, looking for some type of family and some type of father figure to fill this void, and it goes terribly wrong. She also talks about some of these uh, progressive groups, and she mentions the, the Black Lives Matter group. Now, that's different than just saying the statement, Black Lives Matter, which, of course, is true, uh, but there's the official organization with a website, and it's founded by Marxists and socialists, and they have agenda for the, all of society. And in their website, she points out that until they took it down in September, it declared, quote, we disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure required requirement by supporting each other as extended families and villages that collectively care for one another especially our children, to the degree that mothers, parents, and children are comfortable. Saying that part of their goal is to, to break down this idea that the, the core family is something valuable and to replace it with other things, with uh, different building blocks. She also points out what's missing in that statement is the word fathers. It's like that whole idea is just completely absent, like it's been erased from their mindset. So this is kind of where we're at as a society. And this is telling us God's plan for us. And within this, we each, if you are a Christian, we look to God's word and we see that within this, God has callings for us in our family relationships. Now, no matter if you're a kid or or you're married, we have different types of relationships. And our last point here that we're, we're just going to be able to skim the surface on this is that you have a calling for each relationship within your family. And there's multiple things involved for each of these. Back in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, Paul had said, in the context of marriage, talking about that, he said, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. 
So these are callings that God has given us. They're vocations. And Paul mentioned singleness is one, that if, if, if you're single or find yourself single, that's the vocation that God has for you, at least at this time. And there's advantages and ways that God is going to work through you. It also means that being a husband is a vocation, if you're a husband. Being a wife is a vocation. Being a mom is a vocation. If you have uh, created life, you, that is your calling. You are to be a mom uh, to that person. Likewise, dad, if you have created a, a baby, um, whether you want it to or not, you are called to, to be a dad. That is your vocation. And being a child is a vocation too. In each of these, you have a calling, you have a role, and you have responsibilities. Now, I'm going to read here from Ephesians and realize a lot of people would be really ups- are going to be really upset by this. In our culture, this goes against a lot of what people believe. And this is going to be viewed as this is some kind of patriarchy or uh, misogynistic whatever or toxic masculinity. But if we understand this, that's the exact opposite of what this is really saying. This is God's plan, and I say to you, this is good and beautiful and true. And if we put all these things together in the right way, this is what is good for you and for society and for everyone. And as Christians, we should, we, we should realize this. Okay, so let me read the first part here with, with wives and husbands. It's going to start out with something controversial. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, right off the bat there, there's going to be, oh, wait a second. This mean I'm supposed to be a doormat and I'm supposed to be bossed around. We're going to see, no, that's not what this is saying. Okay, this isn't not giving husbands permission to be tyrants. Uh, this is not telling women to remove their backbones, okay? That's not what this is saying, okay? But it is talking about, it is going to be talking about husbands having a role of of headship and leadership. But when we get to the parts where God says to husbands, it's going to change your whole perspective on this because this is not authority the way that the world views authority. So, and this isn't every woman submit to every man. This is in the context of the vocation of marriage between a wife and her husband. Verse 23, it explains, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There's a comparison here. Christ is the head of, of us, the church. The husband, it's saying here, is the, the head, uh, the leader, the authority of, of the wife, of the head of the, the family. As Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. But let's go on. Let's read what it says to husbands. Because I think this is key. This is important. And of all these relationships that we're going to talk about, I honestly think that the most critical one here is the way that husbands treat their wives. It all starts with that. And men... Husbands, if we get this right, it's going to make it so much easier for everything else to fall into place. For all the other roles, for our wives, for our kids, it all, it starts with this. And if the husband's not doing this, everyone else do the best you can and pray for the husband. But for men, this is our calling. Are we going to live up to it or not? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. You're being called to love your wife just in a romantic way? No, this is what it says. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. How much did Christ love the church? What did he do for us? 
and gave himself up for her. Think of the love that Jesus Christ had for us. That he lived the perfect life. He died on the cross. Okay, this is not the type of just uh, boss somebody around uh, type of leadership. This is loving Christ-like leadership. God calls husbands to be Christ-like leaders who love and care for their wives like Christ loved the church. That means we do the hard things. We do the, we're called to do sacrificial things, unpleasant things. Like Christ took the hit for us. We're called to take the hit for our family whenever it's needed. Okay? That's what we are, we're called to do. This is a sacrificial, serving type of leadership. It's still leadership, but this is the way that we're supposed to do it in this Christ-like way. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so in the same way that Christ works in our lives to make us into who we are created and called to be, the husband should be working in his wife and his family to help her to be the person that God created her to be, to, be, uh, to grow as a Christian, uh, to, to grow as uh, a mature woman of God, and definitely not leading her into sin, definitely not doing anything that would, that would stain her purity, but, but guarding her. And that means if you're not married yet, that you are protecting her purity until such a time as, as you actually are married to her. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And he who loves his wife loves himself. And no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So you're to care for your wife. You're to protect her, to provide for her. Husbands have a special uh, role and duty to provide for, for her and for your whole family. We're to nourish. We're not ever to, to abuse or to demean or to, to hurt our, our wives or the rest of our family for that matter. It's the opposite. Christ would never do that to us. He would do what's for our good and we're supposed to do that for our family even if it's hard and even if it hurts us to do that. And it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Going back to Genesis. This is a profound, the mystery is profound. I am saying it refers to Christ and the church. That marriage is designed by God. This is a new truth he's given. Hey, guess what? This was designed in the mind of God from the beginning to show us the relationship between Jesus Christ and the believers, people that he came to save. That this is part of why God created marriage, why God set this all up, to show us what this relationship is like. By the way, that's why you need two different uh, a husband and wife that are not interchangeable. That's why two guys married to each other doesn't work or two girls married to each other because there's not two Jesuses, okay, and there's not two churches. It represents Jesus and the church that he came to die for and to save. And then it says, however, let each one of you love his wife. So husbands are called especially to love their wives as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So God calls wives to respect 
and support their husband's leadership in the home. Uh, Your husband needs your respect. He's going to thrive off of that, and he needs your help. God created Eve as a helper for Adam. Okay, that's not a demeaning thing. That same word is used in the Bible of God helping Israel, okay? And it's not the meaning of God, but it means when, when somebody is a helper, it means they're coming alongside the one that has primary responsibility for a task, okay? So many of you right now, whether you like it or not, uh, are helping to uh, your kids with their distance learning, Okay? And maybe you're having to figure out, you know, math problems that it's been a long time since you were good at this, uh, but other tasks. And let's say you have a very young kid, and maybe you can still remember the math here, okay? And you're helping them. You're actually more educated. You're a grown-up. You got this. Uh, You're the helper, but your first grader is the one with the responsibility to actually do this. So in the same way, you being a helper is not a demeaning thing. It just means you're, you're called to come alongside the one with this responsibility. So Adam is given a primary responsibility, as husbands are, to, to lead their families. But we need help. Uh, I need a lot of help. And my wife knows that. It'd be pretty lost. and It'd be, it'd be ugly. It'd be terrible. Uh, so we need help. And so wives are called to do that and to live out you know, their callings and others use their gifts as well. It also talks about children and parents. At the end here, verse, now verse chapter 6, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So as we finish here with this uh, calling to uh, these, let's talk about parents first. God calls fathers and mothers. It mentions fathers because primary responsibility, but it's them working together to care for their children and to love them by raising them to know and love the Lord. Now, this includes physical care. And so there are just the common everyday tasks that you need to do to care for your kids. And they may seem like drudgery, cleaning and dishes and all these things. But realize this is calling and this is you serving God by serving your children. The reformer, Martin Luther, remember at that time they viewed the only ones that served God are like the monks and the priests and the nuns. Martin Luther taught that changing a baby's diaper is holier work than all of the monks do in the monasteries. And holy work. He said it's because the mother and the father, and yes, Martin Luther talked about fathers changing baby diapers, by the way. Uh, He said that by doing this, they're loving and serving their child, as God is calling them to do. So there's physical needs. God is working through you. Just because it's ordinary or mundane, you're going to view it a different way if you realize this is, this is holy work because this is God calling you to do this. And also spiritual care, instructing from the word, instructing with your life and the example that you live. Gene Veith, in his book, wrote, because there's a strategic impact that fathers make. Okay, so men realize this. Strategic impact. Gene Veith wrote, statistically, 
the single most important factor in whether a child will go to church as an adult is whether the child's father did. In one study, and this is one time in one place, uh, but I think it points to something in the way that we're wired and the impact that a father can make. In this study, when a mother faithfully attended church, but the father did not attend, it said only 2% grew up to be regular worshipers. But in the same study, it said when, if, it was, if you flipped it around, if the mother did not attend at all, but the father attended faithfully, the chances that the child would grow up to attend church faithfully increased 22 times. Now, it's still not 100%, but a huge difference. And again, this is one study at one place and one time, but it shows that there is a strategic impact here, men, that we make in the life of our kids. And that when they see you going to church, especially your sons, they're going to follow your example. And if they see this is something that isn't for you, this isn't a, a man thing to do, they're going to follow that example as well. It's important, and what we do makes a huge impact. Some of these things are are really basic. Uh, Veith writes this, A father who wants his children to grow up to be happy, successful Christian adults can start with these few things. Be married to their mother. Do not divorce her. Do not abandon your children. Be involved in your children's lives and take your children to church. Of course, there's more things than that. But sometimes these are just basic things to start with and make sure they're there. And then children, honor and obey your parents. God calls children to honor and obey their parents and to be trained by them. Honor, that's lifelong, even after you leave the household. Uh, Obedience, especially when you're in the household, you know, if mom and dad are still paying for everything or you're living at home. And you know, Jesus did this too. In Luke 2, there's a story that Luke is 12 years old and he gets left behind in the temple. Okay, and his parents, they finally find him. And it says here in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth Nazareth, and was submissive to them. Jesus, who is the Lord and made the world, he was still submissive to his earthly parents because this was his calling. He was a genuine human child He was also the son of God, but he was a human child, and part of his calling was to obey mom and dad. And so if Jesus obeyed, we are called to do this as well. Obedience to our parents, which is subordinate to our obedience to God. And if mom and dad are called to train you up, then part of your calling, your vocation, is to be trained and to to grow, to be who God is calling you to be to be prepared for what God is going to call you, not just now, but as an adult. Your career or making a living, contributing to society, who you're going to grow into in the church. You know, for guys that you know, aim that you're going, to be, you're going to be deacon material one day, to be, grow up to be husbands and wives or mothers or fathers, your training starts now for this. As we've said, we have all these callings. In some ways, we look back and we say, okay, good, there's some that went well. And other ways, we all look back and say, ah, missed the mark here. And sometimes, um, we may realize 
in more ways than one or seriously. And that's why we need to remember that our acceptance by God is not based on our perfection, but by the one that came and lived out his callings perfectly. If we talk about obedience from a son to a father, we are saved because of the obedience of a son to a father. In Romans 5.19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, it's talking about Adam, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. In all of our callings, we fall short. Praise God, Jesus did not. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you and thank you. We thank you for these callings that you've given us in your design and your plan. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand and to embrace it. And by your grace, live this out the best we can for us and our families and also the spillover effect it has for the rest of our society, Lord God. And Lord, we ask for your grace to help us fulfill these roles and these callings that you have for us. We cannot do these on our own, but we look to you and we ask you for strength. And Lord, we ask you for forgiveness as well too because we have all fallen short. And so we thank you for the one that came in our behalf and kept the law perfectly for us and who died on the cross because he loved the church, that he came for us and shed his blood to save us. We give praise and glory to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.